Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Hero's Journey Economy podcast. Today, I've got Pete Bond. He's VP of CPG and Retail at Power Reviews, consumer behavior expert. He's worked at CVS Health, where he leveraged consumer behavior insights to benefit over 70 million loyalty extra care members, as well as benefiting CVS and its suppliers through targeted digital and traditional marketing media. So responsible for the six-foot register receipts at CVS that you receive at checkout. Prior to CVS Health, Mr. Bond managed the consumer-centric solutions at Dunn Humvees in advanced new product development and customer relationship marketing, driving revenue growth and deepening brand loyalty for such brands as uh, Coca-Cola and Kroger. He has significant marketing research experience working with IRI and spins, and it's a real pleasure to have him here today. Welcome, Pete. Mike, it's such a pleasure. Hard to believe we've known each other for two decades now. Yeah, and thank you so much for being part of the podcast. I've sent you some information on the, the theme of this podcast, and it's really looking at people shifting their spending slowly, kind of in this, but we're moving into maybe more of a you know, hero's journey where people are looking to really lead their lives in a different way or maybe want to do something different and want to change. And part of that transfers into what they buy, what the activities that they do, the services that they employ, and the products that they buy. You're right in the middle of this where you're looking at the reviews of consumer-based products. What are you seeing out there as far as things in the industry, particularly around those things around transformational spending? Sure. Thanks, Mike. Great question. I look at it from the perspective of both the products they're buying and how effective brands and retailers are at accelerating the path to purchase. And technology is playing a major role in that. If you think about walking into a physical store even two or three years ago, it's very different than, than how you behave today. It's hard for me to walk into a store without my mobile device and using that as a mechanism to learn as much as I can about products I may want to purchase, how people are using it, and how it fits that transformative lifestyle that I'm trying to pursue. So when I think about content that I now have accessibility to, it's relatively ubiquitous, whereas a couple years ago it might it might not be as available as, as it is. Customers are now expecting content to be their content about the, what the product looks like, what are the dimensions, what are the details of it, uh, are there discounts available, how does the pricing compare. But increasingly, it's also about the authenticity of that product, and that's the space that I'm very much a part of. I, I want to understand what other shoppers have said about that product. Sure, I can see what a retailer is saying in their copy, and I can see what the brand has probably attended there. But if I've never, uh, if I know nothing about that product, if I'm in a store, I can pick it up and look at the box. If I'm online, I can't. And so I end up having to rely on things like the image carousel, uh, alternate views of the image, applications of the product. But I'm also looking for authentic feedback. I want to know whether people who've bought this product think it's a good product. And that, that, is, that is fundamentally changing the way retailers go to market. They absolutely need to be able to share that content with 
customers if they want to earn that particular purchase. Yeah, that's really interesting. The two themes that I'm seeing as I start to explore this hero's journey economy is trust and authenticity. And authenticity being a huge, it's clear that with all this information, if for some reason you're a product that's maybe an indulgent snack, let's pick on Twinkies for, for one. Let's, let's just say Twinkies, great product out there. But if they ever came out and kind of- product. Yeah, right. And, and if they ever marketed themselves other than what they were, if they started to say, hey, this is actually a good for you product, you know, it just, that would lay, that's one that is kind of obvious. It's maybe not one that you would want to have, you know, just, just eat Twinkies all the time. That probably wouldn't be a recommended diet. But they're a great indulgent snack and always have been for, for years and years and years. But if they tried to position themselves a little bit differently, just would come off almost really disingenuous to a lot of consumers. And it seems like you, what you're seeing is because of all this information out there, that delineation, I'm kind of using one that's fairly obvious, but as you start to get down into a grayer area, this information kind of delineates this authenticity quite a bit, right? Yeah, absolutely. If, if a brand isn't authentic to who it is, customers will figure that out. They'll relay that to other customers. And if you try to, it's not like the old days where if somebody said something bad about your product, maybe you could... Uh, fill the internet with positive messaging and you would hire consulting firms to help change the, uh, the score of your search results. You can't do that with rating and ratings and reviews anymore. So you have to one, be aware of what people are saying to respond to them. Um, and three, do your best to make sure your message is aligned with the authenticity. I think back about 15 years ago when PepsiCo decided to categorize all of its products into one of three categories, uh, good for you, better for you, or fun for you. And that Twinkie product clearly falls into the third group. Right. And then, and then market that accordingly. But it is very important to think about how you uh, how you position your products. I, I, I look at the article that you wrote talking about transformative products, and, and you mentioned Soylent, mm-hmm. which is a plant-based protein drink. They're a client of ours. I'm quite familiar with them, so for all disclosure purposes. But there are a lot of other, even in the consumable space, I think about really interesting ways that products are being transformed. You have really, really inventive products like the Impossible Burger, uh-huh. which found a way to essentially replicate the flavor profile of a burger uh, through a chemical treatment of what ultimately was a deep dive into the blood component of, of burger meat and, and really sealed the, the flavor profile. And that's, that's pretty crazy. But then you have something, uh, another, another brand that took what, some considered a very sleepy and very mature category segment milk, and you had Coca-Cola's Fairlife division, which figured out a new way to filter milk that reduced the calories by half, that increased, that doubled the protein, that reduced the sugar, and lo and behold, they've, they've premium, premiumized, for lack of a better term, the milk category, and it's growing for the first time in decades. So it really comes down, and and they talk about it that way. So they talked about the health benefits, and that resonated with a lot of customers that said, yeah, I I like milk, but I don't want lactose. 
I don't like all the sugar. I don't like this. I don't like that. And they managed to address some of the key issues and really transform the milk segment in the retail industry. So some, some very illuminating examples of how products are addressing the needs of our customers. I know with Soylent, a great example is you look at some of the recent results from a protein-based company like Tyson. They're, they're, they're taking some stock hits and their projections are well below. I can tell you from meetings I've been at, uh, public meetings, nothing, nothing uh, private here, but they are rapidly looking to invest in plant-based solutions to try and hedge their portfolio. They understand where the, the market is going. It's the Wayne Gretzky thing, right? Go where the puck is going, not where the puck is right now. Yeah. Plant-based meat category really, I think, caught a lot of people off guard. The enthusiasm around that, both from a consumer standpoint, which would maybe Main Street and then also Wall Street, both of those just seem to come out of left field. And it's, have you tried the product? Yes, uh, I have. I've had it at, at a couple of burger locations here in Chicago. And I have to say, I'm quite impressed by it. So, the so, major so issue is still the price. It's the price, right? Uh, for right now, it's a premium price versus paying for a standard hamburger, but I suspect at scale, they will be able to create a price that is appealing to every consumer. I was at a burrito place, a national chain burrito place. They had it as an option as one of the protein. I'll be honest with you, it tastes pretty good. You would not know that's not meat. It's uh, pretty surprising. But it was, to your point, it was several dollars more than the other meat alternatives. There was a premium price. Uh, what's, what's also interesting to me is I deal in this space with connecting customers to information is there are some, some what we might call retro technologies that are proving to be very effective in communicating content to customers and shoppers. Case in point, QR codes were invented in 1994, and they really went nowhere. There was a massive amount of friction involved in activating them. In 2008, along comes the smartphone, and everyone thinks, okay, this is when QR codes is going to take off. But of course, you need to download an app, and just the need to download a QR code app was sufficient friction to keep QR codes from, from, from being a, uh, a, a well-distributed solution. Somewhere between 2008 and now, the mobile phone platform software company, so notably Apple, and then the phone manufacturers that support Android, decided that they would start building the QR code reading capability into the camera apps, which essentially negated the need to download a QR code reader. Now, all of a sudden, all you have to do is open up your iPhone, hover your camera over a QR code, and up pops a link to the URL that you're trying to drive people to. That removed an enormous amount of friction. So now what you see is on a lot of food products, you'll see QR codes. You'll see them for smart labels to give you more in nutritional information, content that's very important. You'll see it for contests. Gatorade is, uh, has a limited time uh, flavor of kiwi strawberry, and there's a QR code on it that if you click on it, it will link you to the contest uh, site. And I'm already working with a lot of manufacturers to use QR codes as a mechanism to drive people to uh, deliver feedback about their products. So if you just hold your, or hold, your, hold your phone rather up to the QR code on the package, it will bring you to the form where you can 
write a review about a product and that in that incredibly accelerates the organic collection of feedback that allows brands to learn more about how customers are thinking about their products. QR code is very different. It takes the friction out of it because I, I think about yeah. like I think about a good or bad experience I've had with the brand, and then I'm like, okay, now I've got to get up on their website and find their contact page, or I've got to call their 800 yep. number. And, you know, yep. yeah, I'm like, okay, I'm not that passionate about it, right? You know, like there's, right. there's, a, there's, a, there's a certain amount of time I'm going to, first of all, if I've had a bad experience with some product, I think like they don't bother telling people, unless it's something you really feel strongly about, lots of times you just say, okay, I'm not going to buy this again. And they don't, company doesn't know why. But if there's, yeah. less, if there's less friction there and you yeah. just go, hey, you know what, I could drop a quick note. And it's easy, and you're, everyone always has their phone. That's a great idea, Pete. That I could see. Yeah, and, and marketers are also starting to think about email. Email's a major uh, a major issue in terms of marketers' ability to get the attention. Open rates are low. Click through rates are low. Something retro like SMS is now picking up as a mechanism to get the attention of shoppers. You, it's easy for you to ignore an email that came in from some marketer. But when you see that little number that appears on the messaging app on your phone, you're just drawn to it. You have to open it up. The response rate we find from requesting feedback from SMS is exponentially better than what we see through email. Uh, so using something that, that most people consider to be so 20th century is actually a tool that will get you better results than the primary mechanism where everybody's focusing their 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 investment efforts against uh, outbound communication other than obviously display advertising but yeah. sms is something that you're seeing marketers all of a sudden gravitate back to and you will see a lot of retailers in particular looking to collect phone numbers uh, not for the purpose of calling you but for the purpose of sending you messages interesting that's really sms and sms and qr codes who would have guessed but i think there is a beauty and elegance in some of those old technologies well or i guess we consider it old it's not really old technology it's relatively new in the whole scheme of things you don't have to invite them to a virtual reality world to get feedback something that uh, can be very practical and very quick the, the other issue i see happening is you have direct to consumer or native brands that have emerged you also have the traditional brick and mortar stores and there is a blurring of the lines going on look at look at a company like target and how it has embraced direct to consumer brands like harry's and quip and they're trying to bring them into their store just as they're trying to build an omni-channel shopping experience. They want to be the best online experience for box and ship, but they also want click and, uh, uh, click and collectors. Uh, one of the more interesting terms I've seen used lately is click and mortar, uh, which is the bridge between I order online and my wife loves this. She pulls up at the Target store, doesn't have to unstrap the baby from the carriage, and out comes the person at the appropriate time, puts it in the car, and, and she's home, and that feeds her, her effort. Retailers are working very diligently to try and create that perfect omni-channel experience. They tend to be more focused on the digital end of the spectrum. The real issue is how effective are they going to be at the physical element, and particularly when people walk in stores, and I'll tell you an interesting story. So I mentioned we have a young daughter. When my wife was in her first trimester, 
like many women, she suffered from nausea and she handed me a piece of paper that her OB had given to her with a list of approved medications for pregnant women to address nausea. Off I went to my local grocery store and went to the uh, the health section, found four of the products on the list. And of course, being a ratings and review person, I opened up the retailer's mobile app to try and figure out what people thought about it. And of course, this particular retailer had zero content. So what did I do? In the middle of the store, I did what roughly half of all shoppers do when they're in a physical store and they're looking for content. They go to Amazon. They go to Amazon because they know that Amazon has content and they have a lot of it. And so there I went, there I was on my Amazon app. And of course, I found the ratings and reviews for those four products. But I found a fifth product that wasn't on the shelf. It was on Amazon. It was on the approved list and it had the best ratings. So sitting there inside of the grocery store in Chicago, I placed my order for the product on Amazon and it arrived within 24 hours. My, my wife was happy. I was happy. And even inside the physical store, uh, they were not impervious to the digital world and their, and the digital world's ability to steal business away from them, even as I'm walking the store. Retailers need to be very concerned about owning the experience top to bottom. If they don't, they are at risk. Now, a lot of grocery retailers were faced with a challenge quite a number of years ago with the emergence of obviously Amazon Fresh and Walmart getting into grocery. They wanted to have a digital customer experience, but like many retailers, they're strapped financially from a capital perspective. And along comes this company called Instacart. Now Instacart offers them a solution that they have to pay no investment. And all they need is give me your logo and your store level inventory, and I will build you your digital strategy. And that was great for a couple of years. And all of a sudden you, you see all these retailers embracing Instacart. But there was a really interesting article published a, a couple months ago by Barclays Investment Bank called Dissecting the Instacart Addiction. And what it really gets to the heart of is because you didn't, you get what you pay for essentially as you invest. And if you pay nothing, then you should expect nothing. So as these retailers started to understand that the, there was a homogeneous customer experience from retailer to retailer within the Instacart environment, all that was different was the logo and some of the inventory. As they wanted to do things like change the, the, the experience of the customer, Instacart was inflexible. That's how they built their platform. Moreover, if you left the Instacart, world, you were at peril of them taking business away from you. Case in point, Whole Foods, they pulled out of Instacart. And what happened as a result of that? Well, Instacart started marketing to all the people who'd been buying product from Whole Foods, sharing with them retailers that carried products that matched the items that they had already been been purchasing uh, through Whole Foods. Oh, because they had all the information. They are learning. There are a lot of people that are very concerned that Instacart's getting ready to start opening up dark stores in marketplaces where they have their own assortment, and now they will compete directly. There are a lot of people who are concerned. You know, Target started off with Amazon. If you remember, Target's first online experience was driving e-commerce through Amazon. They quickly figured out that they were teaching Amazon a little bit too much about what they, uh, what they knew, and they decided to exit that, uh, that particular business relationship 
fairly fairly shortly after they got into it and they decided to craft their own journey. Yet you still have retailers that ha- are willing to to play with the likes of Amazon. Very interesting. Transformative is what Kohl's did. They said, we'll act as a return location for all of your Amazon merchandise. Yeah. I love that. I think it's terrific. It's easy for me to pull up to a Kohl's. But it's driving foot traffic for Kohl's. And what they're banking on is the foot traffic that you they get. And they obviously, when you return an item, they give you a discount that's valid in store. Their goal is to try and get you to walk through the store and buy something else. And they're banking on the fact that they'll get more sales from that additional foot traffic than, they, than they'll lose by, uh, by this association with Amazon. Yeah, and it's a, a, it's a risky venture, but we'll see if it works out. Yeah, we have a Kohl's near us, so it definitely, uh, in our household, uh, we've used that. And it sometimes even, it even puts us over the top as to whether we want to buy it on Amazon, because you kind of go, okay, for maybe a larger item or something that's a little bit more complicated, you kind of go, okay, what if it doesn't work? We turn it to Kohl's. It takes the anxiety out of buying something on Amazon that you might not want to buy on Amazon, because you know you can return it easily through Kohl's. It's, so it could work for both. Well, to that point, I'll admit to the fact that there was something I want to buy at and I just quickly bought something on Amazon that I knew would be delivered that day that I had no interest in keeping solely for the purpose of being able to return it to Kohl's and immediately get the 25% discount uh, coupon that prints out. I, I can't imagine I'm alone in this world to figure that out. No, you probably, yeah, there's probably a lot of people that did that. And I guess that's something, as you take a look at the reviews, this is an interesting thing. And I, I kind of liken this new economy to almost like what happened in the Renaissance, in that there was a certain amount of confluence of different things in the Renaissance. One was information. One was kind of a subtle distrust, you know, coming out of the, the Black Death and the plague. There was a lot of distrust in institutions out there. So there was like a certain amount of independence a lot more information. There, because there were less people, there was a fair, the economy was actually sadly, in a, in a sad way, much more affluent because there was more food than there were people and there was a mercantile exchange. So there was this confluence of different things. But one of the things that's very interesting is this review is kind of hits on a lot of those. One is trust with manufacturers can get kind of clarified with these reviews, right? All of a sudden now, I'm hearing the marketing spin from a manufacturer but I can get really what's happening from these reviews. That kind of affects the marketing, right? Because they can't outspend the reviews. The reviews are in some ways louder than the media that a brand might want to project, correct? Yeah, the, the reviews live on. You, yeah. you can try and spin against them, but the authenticity of how customers talk about your product resonates more with other customers than how you spin your product. Most people, when they go to a product page, the first thing they do is they look at the image component. It's the most important part of a product page, at least the, the, the gold standard of market research and product page design is, comes from the Baymart Institute, and they put out a study two years ago. And it's the first thing people do is they go to the image because it helps them understand what does the product look like. In the absence of being able to physically touch it, that's the best they're going to do. The second most important component of the page is the review section. And most notably, it's actually beyond, it's not the average rating per se or the number of reviews. Those do play an important role. It's actually the distribution table. They want to know the distribution between five, four, three, two, and one star. 
and they're most concerned with the one. If they're going to dig down and they're going to look at a review, they're mostly going to read the reviews that are scored as a one. Why? Because they want to understand why someone would give it a, a one. If Is it really about the product came and it was in a damaged box and, uh, it, and the results of that, it put a dent in the can? That's more about the shipping experience and not really about the product itself. They really want to understand what's causing that number. Is someone just mad at the brand because they took an ethical stand on a particular political issue? That's really what they're looking for. Then they look at the review count. Typically, we find in our research that uh, once you've hit a threshold of having 50 reviews, shoppers think it's authentic. They know that uh, it's hard to try and submit a lot of fake reviews. If I see four or five, I'm a little suspect. They also don't trust products that have a five-star review. A sweet spot is somewhere between a 4.2 and a 4.6. There are always going to be people who think it's okay uh, or bad, but if it's pure five stars, there is a massive amount of distrust. So that really goes into the, the, the mechanism. And brands, brands need to be aware of that. They also have to respond to reviews. The, the best brands are the ones that if someone – sends in a one or two star review, that should flag someone on the brand side to respond to that, to address it, to make sure that they acknowledge what the person is saying and either provide them additional information or offer to help resolve their problem with the product. And then the even better is when they offer that person who wrote the review to then write a follow-up review uh, based upon how the brand responded. What I can tell you from our studies is that people who are displeased with a product and then a brand responds and addresses that issue, those people become the most loyal uh, brand followers uh, as a result of that experience. So it's very important. Data is increasingly what determines the success or failure of brands. Big data, the ability to process it, and particularly to create personalized experiences. The space I came from before ratings and reviews, I spent a a good chunk of my time working with retailers around loyalty marketing. You really need to make sure that the experience is as personalized as possible. So the offers that I get, the content that's presented in front of me, should be reflective of uh, of me, uh, less so about my attitude and more so about my behavior, my shopping behavior. You are what you buy is what I've always said. And, and I truly believe that you can learn so much about a customer by what they buy, when they buy it, what they buy it with, how they use discounts, how they use savings. Uh, and the goal there is to create as personalized an experience to get from one to all to one to many and though it's still a bit out of reach one-to-one, making sure that the the experience, so understanding that there are some customers that you need to send a coupon to. There are other customers that you don't need to send a coupon to because they never clip coupons, but if you let them know that the products that they like to buy are on sale this week, that'll drive a trip to a store. And there are others that you just need to send content to. There are a lot of beauty buyers that if you send them a video, in an email that shows them how to apply makeup so they look like they came out of the capital city in the movie The Hunger Games, that will actually drive them to buy a product, much more so than trying to give them a discount. They're not into discounts. The goal here is to use all of that massive data 
and try and personalize the experience. Yeah, that's interesting. What you said about an upset customer that gets brought back into the fold becomes a, has one of the strongest allegiance to the brand is very interesting. Um, that, yeah, people people respond if they put this into the world because they really feel a duty to inform the brand about the issue. If the brand actually takes the time to respond and try to address that to most customers, they are shoppers. They look at that as, wow, this brand is actually responding to me, to me. And because of that, and if they can help me resolve it, wow, this is a brand I want to work with. I want to buy. I want to advocate for because they they pulled the, you know, the proverbial uh, fable, they pulled the thorn out of the lion's paw and now the lion is loyal to them forever. Yeah, that is, it's also a sign of respect. I've taken the time to buy the product, to use the product, and for whatever reason, it's come up short and now I'm taking an additional amount of time to, you know, like I mentioned earlier, sometimes I don't, you know, I just move on. But if you take the additional yeah. time to say, hey, guess what? This thing didn't work out and I was really hoping it did. And just so you know, here's the issue I had. And then to have a response to that in some kind of solution or an attempt of a solution, that's an interesting, it's almost like you're traveling on a journey with someone, right? Like they're really upset about something and you're helping them with it. It, it does show a certain amount of respect for for that person's time and money. And, and it's not just after, it's not just associated with the purchase of a product. The best brands and the best retailers are accessible to shoppers before a product is purchased. They have question and answer capabilities. Ulta, Ulta is a great retailer example. They get thousands of questions a year about the product, the beauty products that they're selling. They've done a tremendous job of building a, a Q&A solution that actually leverages all of the, the brands that sell to their store. They say, if you're going to sell to my store, I expect you that if a question comes in about your brand, I'm going to provide you with the connectivity, but I expect you to be able to respond to these, these, these shoppers and answer their questions. So uh, they get those questions answered and they get them answered very quickly. And that helps accelerate the path to purchase. And, and they answer those questions both before they buy it. And even after they buy it, they have questions about, how do I get that particular look or how do I create that experience? That's the, that's the job of the brands because Ulta doesn't have that level of expertise at a product level. That's not their job. Their job is to sell these products, but connecting those products, stoppers that are buying that product to the brands that make it is probably one of the major success factors of why Ulta has created such a dynamic omni-channel shopping experience. That's very interesting. So there's, instead of saying, hey, this is the margins I expect to sell from your product, it's my way, the highway, they're, they're setting a different, well, I'm sure there's some, do, there's some discussions around the dollars, but the whole idea sure. that you're going to be exposed to, you're going to be exposed to an ecosystem of trust and response that we expect you to live up to, or you're not going to be part of this. And that's because that is our brand. It's not, we're not the lowest priced item out there. We're not the discount retailer. We're a retailer that provides trust and a certain amount of experience at the, at, at the consumer level that's unique. And if you're not up for that, you can't be part of the, the Ulta channel, which is, that's an interesting thing. And, and what, what's resulted from that is Ulta stands out as a retailer that collects an enormous amount of user-generated content, so much so that when you go to a site and you look at, at ratings and reviews, uh, 
they actually default to showing reviews that are generated by uh, shoppers of that of, of Ulta, as opposed to many within the industry, the background is brands collect a lot of content. It's moderated by companies like Power Reviews, and then it's shared to retailers, syndicated uh, for display on their sites. Most retailers, Walmart, Target, what have you, they rely very heavily on syndication as a source for rating and review. Ulta has taken the game to a whole new level and they are displaying um, as a default only content that's collected from people who are verified buyer shopping at Ulta. If you want to see syndicated reviews, you have to actually dig a little deeper. But they're really focused on making sure that they not only have a lot of content, but that the content is coming from shoppers uh, that, that shop at Ulta. They think that is uh, the better way to engender trust in their shoppers for the products that they're selling. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's it's really creating their own their own reviews. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. If someone is wronged and corrected, is uh, that's amazing because I find that some of the more interesting stories I hear from people are, uh, you know, this happened. It's almost those mythical Nordstrom stories, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or the or the people that go over. Like I have one at I have one from from Disney World where I got stuck in a ride at Epcot and I missed my mm-hmm. uh, I missed my dinner reservation at the Italian restaurant, which is hard to get into, Alfredo's. I actually went up and not to get rescheduled. I just said, hey, let the restaurant know we're not going to be able to make this reservation because uh, we missed it and we're not coming. And, and they said, no, 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 we'll correct it. And that not only did they get us into this restaurant that I think we had to book out a week ahead of time, they got us into the restaurant. And then surprising to us, the restaurant paid our bill. And the restaurant had no restaurant separate from the park. Right. Had, had nothing to do with me getting stuck on a ride. And it wasn't like we got we were there for a day. We were only there for like long enough for the, to miss our reservation. We were there eh, maybe a half hour on the ride, but it was okay. I mean, we weren't distraught or anything. Now I'm telling you that story. So and how many other people have you told that story to? Oh, right? I've, I've told hundreds, you know, and it's, it's just one it's of those. It's a customer kind of, experience. Yeah, because, and, and you know what? We ate our dinner. Everything was fine. And then when, they, when the bill came, they said, uh, no, we're picking this up because you got stuck on the ride. And like we for, by that time, we almost forgot we got stuck on the ride. You know, we were just happy to get into the restaurant. We're having a great meal. And it certainly wasn't necessary. But I think it was like, okay, that's a great, this, was, this has now been a great experience instead of a bad experience. And I've told hundreds of people, you're right. Those become and, kind of mythical, the, you know, the homeless person in the Nordstrom's and, and some of those customer service stories where they're correcting something uh, wrong is something uh, that's always interesting. The key, the, key to the, the key to success of this is when you have people that work on this business to make those kinds of decisions, to sit there and say, solving this person's customer experience problems and turning them from a disappointed customer into a delighted customer. When you're able to do that effectively, um, that's what will transform your brand into being substantially more, more appreciated and more valued and more trusted in the industry. Yeah. Amazon's got a long way to go. They, they clearly have ubiquity in terms of the products that they offer and everybody shops at Amazon, but the trust factor is something that they are still dealing with that they can't quite shake. And if they can, I will hazard a guess as to say that their success will be even more accelerated than, than it has been. But uh, trust is trust is a critical issue. But data is also 
like I said, a key component. I, I think that Amazon just scratches the surface on how they use the data. They use it to, there's no, you know, it's interesting having been on the inside and talked to many people and have friends that work at Amazon. The business units are very separate. There is no master person there thinking about how do I take sales of Kindle devices and drive shampoo sales. There's no cross-connectivity. Um, and, and they operate very separately. I often think that Amazon has succeeded in spite of itself and not because of itself. But they're not, they're not doing things as much with data as you really think they are. Um, but then the, the other happens, the other end of the spectrum is if you use data without safeguards, you run the risk of severely damaging your brand. And the example that I'll bring to mind is uh, the man who uh, received a direct mail piece from Target yep. uh, related to his uh, uh, pregnancy products when his daughter went in and purchased a product and it was associated with the household data and, and it was a, it was a, a pregnancy test. And that's how he found out about his daughter. It was all over the press. It caused Target a tremendous amount of negative publicity to the point where I can tell you from my time at CVS, decisions were made around what product categories are we willing to or not willing to include in communications. And that became a, a category that was in many ways off limits for personalization. So you really need to be careful about how you use information to personalize an experience. If it embarrasses, upsets, or infuriates a customer, probably not a good idea to use data that way. That's going to be an interesting thing, Pete, because let's say a couple things on this. The whole the sharing of data is interesting because let's say in this hero's journey is there are some companies, like for example, there's a company that, that specializes in doing DNA testing for food to say, hey, you know what, beyond just sure. food allergies, you, there are foods mm -hmm. that you, you and I are probably should avoid. They're not going to kill us, but our body just doesn't respond well to them, whether it's like tomatoes mm -hmm. or, or different things, or, or we mm -hmm. should heavy up on avocados. And there's companies now that kind of say, hey, you know what, there's some foods you should just avoid based on, on your individual DNA. And then here are some th foods that you should heavy up on. And they're going the extra step yeah. of saying, okay, we want to partner now with food delivery services and restaurants. And then we also want to, and they're, they're partnering with Fitbit. So they're building this like support network around that. But there does have to be a certain amount of trust because if you share that, hey, you know what, I've mm -hmm. got, you know, I've uh, a mental illness and I can't have, I'm making this up, grapefruit or something. It interacts with my, my medication that I'm taking. So now you're putting yep. that out there to a trusted advisor. But where that yep. goes now, you know, like, like where that goes, like all of a sudden, does that trigger like an, that information is like would help with the journey. Okay, grapefruit is an issue because of this. And then, and then where that goes is, like you said, like how they use it in the future. A lot of companies could help me in my journey, but I'm going to be very particular about what I share with them. Even I've got someone in my family with a peanut allergy or I'm on a ketogenic diet. Right. I'm, not, I'm not sure I want to share that with anybody, even though, let's say, let's say I've got a, a family member with a severe peanut allergy and I share that with my retailer. And then anything that scans at the register you know, gives it a like, eh, you know, like, okay, this has got peanuts in it. Like that seems pretty harmless. Do you want to do that? 
yeah, but I don't know if I want to do that, right? So there does have well, to be this huge amount of trust in this, in this interaction going back and forth. Well, there, there are two things that I think about when I deal with this issue of health lifestyles and trying to adhere to them. So you mentioned keto, paleo, uh, gluten-free, non-GMO, fair vegan, vegetarian. If you get into the convenience economy where you have prepared foods and and for many of the people with these conditions or these, these health life, restrictive health lifestyles, they've had to depend upon their ability to make the food themselves, right? Yep, so the yep. question is, in this digital age, do we have the ability to, one, communicate to customers about all of these products? When you're sitting there and you're looking at a product on a shelf, you ultimately have to rely on what's on the product. The question is, can I uh, create a recipe and immediately filter for the lifestyle that I'm trying to address and be able to quickly select all the products or do, uh, or can I even select a prepared food from a high-end retailer that has gourmet products and it's ready to eat? How do I know that they are adhering to that lifestyle? Uh, and so inserting that into the customer experience is a real challenge for particularly prepared foods. And the retailers that succeeded that and make it easy for people with those health lifestyles to embrace convenient food solutions, those I think will be winners in this economy. Yeah. I get concerned with ties to Fitbit. Let's say you're on a ketogenic diet and you're, mm -hmm. tied, to, you're tied to Fitbit and you're entering all this information in uh, weight and everything. And you mm -hmm. know what, for, mm -hmm. for whatever, for whatever reason you're, I'm not successful on it. Does that some yeah. does that get perpetuated out into the thing as hey, you know what this person's a lousy dieter or is not or is yeah. not or can't achieve their goals when they try and do something and then all of a sudden they get that gets flagged as either they're not going to take my input seriously or worst case mm -hmm. scenario worst case scenario this trickles into some kind of insurance database oh, yeah. where, where like all of a sudden I'm not I'm overweight and I can't seem to lose weight so I'm a, almost like a smoker that can't stop smoking or something all of a sudden I've released some information to hopefully wow. make meet my goals and it's totally in your in your pregnancy targeting come back to haunt me maybe years later or in ways I'm not even aware of this is happening without even me like that pregnancy mailer is one but what, what's happening behind the scenes where, hey, things aren't happening and I don't even know about it? Well, this is an issue where privacy is a one-way street. A shopper's willingness to share that privacy is dependent upon ultimately, and they control it, or they want to control it, how you use that to better their life. If you use that to punish or correct them, they, they will not want to share that data with you. That's a lot of why GDPR showed up over in Europe, uh, which restricted the ability of retailers to use and share data about what was being purchased by customers to market to them. Um, and that, that is, that's a major concern. So as you start to think about that, that lifestyle, not only when I think about a Fitbit, when I use a Fitbit, there's a real convenience aspect of scanning a barcode and have, instead of having to enter in all the information from a processed packaged food, I can scan the barcode and boom, it all populates. But how do I know that, that the person who entered that actually entered it correctly? Was it, was it entered by the brand? Does the brand have a bet? Is there a, if you think about Twitter where you have a verified person or 
anything else where there's some aspect of certification, how, how do you know that what was entered? So therefore, if I scan the barcode purely to be convenient, can I trust that that information is actually correct? That's, this is where the whole trust economy is still working itself out. People are willing to give up some of that trust for convenience, but if, you, if they end up getting burned by it, that will set the industry back uh, tremendously. And as a result of that, uh, it, will mean, uh, it will mean slower movement towards the adoption of different technologies to help people live a better and transformative lifestyle. Yeah, that's, it's going to be an interesting thing. Where do you see the whole idea of the influencers out there? These people that are kind of they're like they're power reviewers, but it, I yep. sense, and I yeah. don't follow it as closely as you do. You're the pro in this. But my sense mm-hmm. is there tends to be of, let's say, the last three months, the press is a little on these guys saying, hey, you know what? They're being paid, they're being paid to do this. They're no more, they're not that much different than yeah. a, company, a company spokesperson. They're just taking the money from more than one company. What's yeah. your sense of the, of the evolution of the influencer and where that's going? Sure, sure. Well, uh, I, again, for purposes of transparency, which I'm all about, uh, my company Power Reviews does sampling and influencer marketing. We have a community of who are what I call micro-influencers. So I generally don't make decisions based upon what the Kardashians are buying, uh, Maybe I'm maybe I'm in the minority, but I think that less than celebrities, where you know that they're getting paid to do that, shoppers are much more influenced by by micro micro influencers, people that are just like them that have a couple hundred followers, not millions of followers, who talk about the products and they just say, "Hey, listen, I got a sample of this product. I was asked to give you an honest review, not a positive review or a negative review, just." All I had to do was write a review about this product. And those influencers tend to carry a lot more weight with everyday shoppers because they're followed by friends of theirs uh, and people they know rather than as a celebrity. So I think where we'll end up is, does that mean that the Real Housewives of Orange County, Transparency, I know several of them, that's another story. But... Uh, that they will they won't continue to flog uh, whatever product they're being paid to to sell. Sure, they will. They're getting paid for it, and it obviously has some measurable results. But I think that micro influencers are probably a better bet for brands because it allows them to hedge their bet. It allows them to diversify. It's less expensive, and they can get more um, more feedback than by having to pay for one really expensive celebrity to uh, to advocate and try to influence for their product. Yeah, what I try and do is, you know, I'm always looking for ways to kind of optimize my life and kind of a, I'm not obsessed with it, but I'm just trying to, you know, be a better person, I guess, overall. And I oftentimes listen to people that it's, they're disconnected from um, maybe something, I'll give you an example, like Wim, Wim Hof is this person who, who's experimenting with cold. So he goes into very, he's climbed most of Mount Everest in shorts and bare feet. And he's one of these guys that is into cold therapy. He believes everyone should take like a five minute cold shower every day. It's actually good for you. And I'm not that, uh, I get that. But someone who climbs up half of Mount Everest with like bare feet and shorts, you know, I want to know what that guy had for breakfast. And, you know, especially like just just almost out of curiosity, what does he have? And and I'm not, Mm -hmm. and, and, 
and if I'm sure it's not sponsored, right? It, but it was just like, hey, what's your morning routine like if you have that type of, if you're able to do that? Or, mm-hmm. or and then it's almost like a Tom Brady who plays football when he's 42 years old. Now he's got a whole line of stuff and it gets a little blurry. Like I look at him and go, okay, that's mm-hmm. aspirational. But how much of this stuff now, if you go to the Tom Brady store in Boston in Back Bay, how much of this is really stuff he uses or not? So it becomes this, right. you know, I'm always looking for the offhanded comment from some of these people to say, yeah, I, I skip breakfast. I don't have anything to lunch <laughs> or, 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 you know, it's those types of things like, oh, I, I'm an intermittent faster, so I don't eat till three and I eat between three and six each day. And then I don't mm-hmm. and like, and it's like, I don't really watch what I eat or so it, it's one of those things where. I'm looking at influencers in my world with a ho- with a lens where I'm hoping they're not being paid. And, and, and yeah, to look at and that's why I think micro micro influencers are are a better bet because one, they they have to be transparent about, and certainly at our company, any any social media post by one of our micro influencers has to contain certain uh, terminology and language to let people know that that they have been incentivized for a review. Uh, not a positive review, but a review. Um, and that drives authenticity into the experience. And it also allows for the collection, like I said, of much more feedback. Yep. Uh, one super celebrity gets you thousands of, uh, if not more, of micro-influencers to, and, and from that, it, the, the, the real secret here is not only just getting the feedback, but making sense of it. It's great to have 650 reviews, or if you go and look at a diaper product, they're probably 80 to 120,000 reviews. How does a brand manager make sense of the feedback that they're getting? Well, the way you do that is you use natural language processing and AI to essentially help you identify what are the themes, the words, the subjects that are associated with both positive and negative reviews. And then you get to make decisions, right? You get to make a decision that if you launch the product, and you are focusing on a particular attribute, and that attribute is not what's resonating with positive reviews. It's a completely different attribute. You got a couple of choices there. You can either go with the flow and just retool your messaging to go with what people are saying are the positive attributes of this product, or you can invest heavily in trying to retool your messaging to highlight the attribute that you think is most important. Now, I'm more inclined to say you go with the former because the customer is always right, but there are some brands that uh, really want to focus on what they think is the, the, the right message to the customer. Customers tend to know what, what they like about a product and what they don't once they've bought it, and they'll tell you about it. And if you can make sense of that and identify it, you can tweak your marketing strategy to highlight what is best about your product, and that will accelerate the path to purchase. Yeah. That, that, what are they called? Micro reviewers? Is that what they're called? Or what are they called? Micro influencers. Micro so influencers, I would call yeah. a micro influencer. Yeah. A micro influencer is someone who does social media, loves making posts, loves talking about things, but they don't have a million uh, followers. They have a couple hundred followers. Right. And they're typically people they know, and people they know trust them. And so when they put something up there, they, uh, the people that are watching them actually trust it a lot more. And that, that, that weighs very heavily on a shopper's decision. Oh, you know, if my, my cousin uh, Janice liked this product, I'm going to give it a try because yeah, she's a pretty good person. She seems to 
seems to have a good head on her shoulders. I like her opinion. I'm going to go and give it a shot as opposed to some celebrity is holding it up and you know that they're getting paid for it. You have no idea if that product is good or not. And that really comes down to the, the real influence of that person. You know, yeah. when you've got 10, listen, I'm not going to say that someone's got 17 million followers that they don't have influence. They obviously do. They're, they are, they're giving you exposure, right? They're giving you the actual people recognizing and, and associating a brand. That's great. But are the, how deep is that, is that influence? It's, sure. it's broad, but it's not deep. Micro-influencers have much deeper influence. Yeah, anybody who's, who's got a, a billion net worth just from being an influencer has obviously hawked, mm -hmm. has obviously hawked products that they probably are probably don't really use or have taken some kind of just spurge anybody. But if you're that known for being an influencer, you've then been, been approached by brands with huge amounts of money to say something about a product that maybe you might not have endorsed if, it, if you weren't getting the money, right? That, that probably and, happens. And good, good, good celebrity influencers who are ones who think very carefully about how they choose brands to promote. Uh, the ones that are more authentic are the ones that use products that are aligned to their lifestyle and the products they actually use. Do you really want to trust someone who's worth hundreds of millions of dollars who's talking about driving a, an affordable Kia? You know they're not driving that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Why would you trust their opinion on it? Um, I'm more inclined to trust someone like Matthew McConaughey, who I can actually see driving around a Lincoln, and he probably really appreciates it. Um, so it really comes down to, again, this getting back to this whole concept of authenticity. Uh, the more authenticity you drive into the messaging, the more likely you are to get someone to try the product and, and convert the sale. You know, one of the biggest, I'll say, I'll say this, for retailers, one of the biggest issues they have is supporting their own brand, their own private label. And you see retailers that are doing a really good job of that. Target is launching in a couple of weeks a new brand called Good & Gather, which is a essentially a, a replica of what Kroger did with Simple Truth. It's natural and organic product. They're going to launch thousands and thousands of, of SKUs in, in that. But a lot of other retailers, um, particularly grocery, they're challenged always with this dilemma of how do I get national brand users to try my private label? There's a great study by a research firm out of Dallas called Maggot last year around private label. And the most interesting data point I got from it was the single biggest driver of conversion from national brands to private label is positive customer reviews, much more so than the price or the, or the reputation of the retailer, right? Because when you buy private label, you're already intuitively, you're already expecting to save money. Yeah. But is the quality there, right? That's the real issue. Is the quality enough to justify buying the product and saving a little money? If the paper towel is too thin and too flimsy, it doesn't matter how cheap you make it. I don't want to buy it. Um, and if you can start building content, building trust in your private label, that will get people. And I've, I've proven this out with quite a number of retailers lately where we've done this work. You build content and authenticity around your your brands, and you will see significant sales increase. It's it's a real powerful tool for brands that don't have huge, massive marketing budgets behind them. That's really interesting. Hey, I really want to thank you, Pete, for being here today. This has been a really interesting discussion. Where can people find you if they're looking for you 
on the internet or on LinkedIn? Is, is there a place where they could see the thought leadership that you're providing to us right now? Where can they get it, you know, after this podcast? Sure. So it doesn't really matter which social media platform you go to as long as it involves uh, P is in Peter, V is in Victor, S is in Stephen Bond, PVS Bond. You'll find me there under Twitter, under Instagram. My LinkedIn is linkedin.com slash in slash PVS Bond. Uh, those are typically all the sources, um, though you will find on my Instagram right now, I'm pretty much obsessed with my daughter. Uh, <laughs> but you'll see, a lot of, you'll see a lot of content that I like to share about interesting products, interesting shopping experiences. You'll also see a lot of food pictures because I've, I've been a foodie my whole life and have uh, spent a lot of time at, 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 at restaurants, not only eating there, but actually um, my idea of a great relaxing weekend is to go into a restaurant, uh, chop mise en place for a day just so the chef teaches me a particular cooking technique. So um, wow. that's where you'll find me uh, uh, on, at PVS Bond on all those, on all those platforms. PVS Bond. Got it. Well, thanks a lot for, for uh, again, taking the time today. You're right in the, in the niche of what a lot of this, these podcast listeners are, are interested in, is where the authenticity, where the trust is, how can I make decisions about different things, and how can I, if I have a product that's aimed at the, like the hero's journey economy, what's, what are some key things? So I think uh, this has been really valuable. I've taken a lot of good notes. I really appreciate your time today. My pleasure, Mike. Great talking to you. Thanks, Pete. All right. Bye-bye.